Chapter Twenty One, Part Two of Etiquette. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marissa Jacobs. Etiquette in Society, in Business, in Politics, and at Home, by Emily Post. Chapter Twenty One. First Preparations Before a Wedding. Part Two. The Trousseau. A trousseau, according to the derivation of the word, was a little truss or bundle that the bride carried with her to the house of her husband. In modern times, the little bundle often requires the services of a van to transport. The wrappers and underclothes of a young girl are usually very simple, but when she is to be a bride, her mother buys her as lavishly as she can and of the prettiest possible assortment of lace-trimmed lingerie, tea-gowns, bed-sacks, and caps, whatever may be thought especially becoming. The various undress garments which were to be worn in her room or at the breakfast-table, and for the sole admiration of her husband, are of far greater importance than the dresses and hats to be worn in public. In Europe it is the custom to begin collecting linen for a girl's trousseau as soon as she is born, but the American bride cares nothing for dozens upon dozens of stout linen articles. She much prefers gossamer texture lavishly embellished with equally perishable lace. Everything must be bought for beauty. Utility is not considered at all. No stout hand-woven underwear trimmed with solidly stitched needlework. Modern Miss Millions demands handkerchief linen, and Valenciennes lace of a quality that used to be put as trimming on a ball-gown, and Miss Smallpurse asks for chiffon and less expensive, but even more sheer and perishable laces. Not long ago a stocking was thought fine if it could be run through a wedding-ring. Today no stocking is considered fit to put on for town or evening wear, unless several together can slip through the measure once the test for one. THE MOST EXTRAVAGANT trousseau. The most lavish trousseau imaginable for the daughter of the very rich might have supposed to comprise house linen. One to six dozen finest quality embroidered or otherwise trimmed linen sheets with large embroidered monogram. One to six dozen finest quality linen sheets, plain hem-stitched, large monogram. One to six dozen finest quality linen undersheets, narrow hem, and small monogram. Two pillowcases, and also one little pillowcase, for small down pillow, to match each upper sheet. One to two dozen blanket covers. These are of thin washable silk in white or in colors to match the rooms, edged with narrow lace and breadths to put together with lace insertion. Six to twelve blankets. Three to twelve wool or down-filled quilts. Two to ten dozen finest quality extra-large face towels with Venetian needlework or heavy handmade lace insertion or else embroidered at each end, and embroidered monogram. Five to ten dozen finest quality hem-stitched and monogrammed, but otherwise plain, towels. Five to ten dozen little hand-towels to match the large ones. 
one to two dozen very large bath towels with embroidered monogram, either white or in color to match the border of the towels. Two to four dozen smaller towels to match. One tablecloth, six or eight yards long, of finest but untrimmed damask, with embroidered monogram on each side of four corners. Three dozen dinner napkins to match. Lace inserted and richly embroidered tablecloths of formal dinner size are not in the best taste. One tablecloth five to six yards long with two dozen dinner napkins to match. One to four dozen damask tablecloths two and a half to three yards long and one dozen dinner napkins to match each tablecloth. All tablecloths and napkins to have embroidered monogram or initials. Two to six medium-sized cutwork, mosaic, or Italian lacework tablecloths with lunch napkins to match. Two to six centerpieces with doilies and lunch napkins to match. Four to a dozen tea cloths of fillet lace or drawn work or Russian embroidery with tiny napkins to match. Table pieces and tea cloths have monograms if there is any plain linen where a monogram can be embroidered. Otherwise, monograms or initials are put on the napkins only. One or two dozen damask tablecloths, plain, with monogram, and a dozen napkins to match each. In addition to the above, there are two to four dozen servants' sheets and pillowcases, six to twelve woolen blankets, six to twelve wool-filled quilts, four to six dozen towels, and one or two dozen bath towels, six to twelve white damask, cotton or linen, and cotton mixed, tablecloths, and six to twelve dozen napkins, all marked with machine embroidery, two to six dozen kitchen and pantry towels and dishcloths complete the list. Personal Trousseau how many dresses can a bride wear? It all depends. Is she to be in a big city for the winter season, or at a watering place for the summer? Is she going to travel or live quietly in the country? It is foolish to get more outside clothes than she has immediate use for. Fashions change too radically. The most extravagant list for a bride who is to out continually in New York or Newport would perhaps include a dozen evening dresses, two or three evening wraps of varying weights. For town there would be from two to four street costumes, a fur coat, another long coat, a dozen hats, and from four to ten house dresses. In this day of weekends in the country, no trousseau, no matter how town-bred the bride, is complete without one or two country coats of fur, leather, or woolen materials, several homespun tweed or tricot suits or dresses, skirts with shirt-waists and sweaters in endless variety, low or flat-heeled shoes, woolen or woolen and silk mixture stockings and sport hats. If the season is to be spent out of town, even in Newport or Palm Beach, the most extravagant bride will find little use for any but country clothes, a very few frocks for Sunday, and possibly a lot of evening dresses. Of course, 
if she specks to run to town a great deal for lunch or if she is to travel she chooses her clothes accordingly so much for the outer things on the subject of the under things which being of the first importance are saved for the last one can dip into any of the women's magazines devoted to fashion and fashionables and understand at first sight that the furnishings which may be put upon the person of one young female would require a catalogue as long and varied as a seedsman's. An extravagant trousseau contains every article illustrated, and more besides, in quality never illustrated, and by the dozens. But it must not for a moment be supposed that every fashionable bride has a trousseau like this especially the household linen which requires an outlay possible only to parents who are very rich and also very indulgent the moderate trousseau the moderate trousseau simply cuts the above list into a fraction in quantity and also in quality there is nothing of course that takes the place of the smooth fineness of really beautiful linen it can no more be imitated than can a diamond and its value is scarcely less. The linen of a really modest trousseau in this day of high prices must of necessity be cotton. Fortunately, however, many people dislike the chill of linen sheets, and also prefer cotton face towels, because they absorb better, and cotton is made in attractive designs and in endless variety. For her personal trousseau, a bride can have everything that is charming and becoming at comparatively little expense. She who knows how to do fine sewing can make things beautiful enough for any one, and the dress made or hat trimmed at home is often quite as pretty on a lovely face and figure as the article bought at exorbitant cost at an establishment of reputation. Youth seldom needs expensive embellishment. Certain things such as footwear and gloves have to be bought and are necessary. The cost, however, can be modified by choosing dresses that one-color slippers look well with. In cities such as New York, Washington, or Boston, it has never been considered very good taste to make a formal display of the trousseau. A bride may show an intimate friend or two a few of her things, but her trousseau is never spread out on exhibition. There can, however, be no objection to her doing so, if it is the custom of the place in which she lives. WHAT THE BRIDESMAIDS WEAR The costumes of the bridesmaids, slippers, stockings, dresses, bouquets, gloves, and hats, are selected by the bride, without considering or even consulting them as to their taste or preferences. The bridesmaids are always dressed exactly alike as to the texture of materials and model of making, but sometimes their dresses differ in color. For instance, two of them may wear pale blue satin slips covered with blue chiffon and cream lace ficus, and cream-colored picture hats trimmed with orchids. The next two wear orchid dresses, cream fichus, and cream hats trimmed with pale blue hydrangeas. The maid of honor likewise wears the same model, but her dress is pink chiffon over pink satin, and her cream hat is trimmed with both orchids and hydrangeas. The bouquets would all be alike of orchids and hydrangeas. Their gloves all alike of cream-colored suede, and their slippers blue orchid and pink with stockings to match. 
Usually the bridesmaids are all alike in color as well as outline, and the maid of honor exactly the same but in reverse colors. Supposing the bridesmaids to wear pink dresses with blue sashes and pink hats trimmed in blue, and their bouquets are of larkspur. The maid of honor wears the same dress in blue with pink sash, blue hat trimmed with pink, and carries pink roses. At Lucy Gilding's wedding, her bridesmaids were dressed in deep shades of burnt orange and yellow, wood-color slippers and stockings, skirts that shaded from brown through orange to yellow, yellow leghorn hats trimmed with jonquilles, and jonquille bouquets. The maid of honor wore yellow running into cream, and her hat, though of the same shape of leghorn, was trimmed with cream feathers, and she carried a huge cream feather fan. As in the case of the wedding dress, it is foolish to enter into descriptions of these clothes, more than to indicate that they are of light and fragile materials, more suitable to evening than to daytime. Flower girls and pages are dressed in quaint old-fashioned dresses, and suits of satin with odd old-fashioned bonnets, or whatever the bride fancies as being especially picturesque. If a bridesmaid mourning, she wears colors on that one day, as bridesmaids' dresses are looked upon as uniforms, not individual costumes. Nor does she put a black band on her arm. A young girl in deepest mourning should not be a bridesmaid, unless at the very private wedding of a bride or groom also in mourning. In this case she would be most likely the only attendant and wear all white. As a warning against the growing habit of artifice, it may not be out of place to quote one commentary made by a man of great distinction who, having seen nothing of the society of very young people for many years, had to go to the wedding of a niece. It was one of the biggest weddings of the spring season in New York. The flowers were wonderful, the bridesmaids were many and beautiful, the bride lovely. Afterwards the family talked long about the wedding but the distinguished uncle said nothing. Finally he was asked point-blank, "'Don't you think the wedding was too lovely? Weren't the bridesmaids beautiful?' "'No,' said the uncle. "'I did not think it was lovely at all. Every one of the bridesmaids was so powdered and painted that there was not a sweet or fresh face among them. I can see a procession just like them any evening on the musical comedy stage.' One expects make-up in a theatre, but in the house of God it is shocking. It is unnecessary to add, if youth, the most beautiful thing in the world, would only appreciate how beautiful it is, and how opposite is the false bloom that comes in boxes and bottles. Shiny noses, colorless lips, sallow skins hide as best they may, and with some excuse behind powder or lipstick, but to rouge a rose... THE COST OF BEING A BRIDESMAID With the exception of parasols or muffs or fans, which are occasionally carried in place of bouquets, and presented by the bride, every article worn by the bridesmaids, flower-girls, or pages, although chosen by the bride, must be paid for by the wearers. It is perhaps an irrefutable condemnation of the modern wedding display that many a young girl has had to refuse the joy of being in the wedding party, because a complete bridesmaid outfit costs a sum 
that parents of moderate means are quite unable to meet for popular daughters. And it is seldom that the bride is herself in a position to give six or eight complete costumes, much as she may want all of her most particular friends with her on her day of days. Very often a bride tries especially to choose clothes that will not be expensive, but New York prices are New York prices, and the chic which is to make the wedding a perfect picture is the thing of all others that has to be paid for. Even though one particular girl may be able to dress herself very smartly in homemade clothes of her own design and making, those same clothes duplicated eight times seldom turn out well. Why this is so is a mystery. When a girl looks smart in inferior clothes, the merit is in her, not in the clothes, and in a group of six or eight, five or seven will show a lack of finish, and the tender-hearted bride who, for the sake of their purpose, sends her bridesmaids to an average little woman to have their clothes made, and to a little hat-place around the corner, is apt to have a rather dowdy little flock fluttering down the aisle in front of her. How many bridesmaids? This question is answered by, How many friends has she whom she has always promised to have with her on that day? Has she a large circle of intimates, or only one or two? Her sister is always maid of honor. If she has no sister, she chooses her most intimate friend. A bride may have a veritable procession, eight or ten bridesmaids, a maid of honor, flower-girls, and pages. That is, if she follows the English custom, where every younger relative, including the little boys as pages, seems always to be brought into a perfect maypole procession of ragged ages and sizes. Or she may have none at all. She almost always has at least one maid or matron of honor, as the picture of her father standing holding her bouquet and stooping over to adjust the fall of her dress would be difficult to witness with gravity. At an average New York wedding there are four or six bridesmaids. Half of the maids may be matrons, if most of the bride's group of friends have married before her. It is, however, not suitable to have young married women as bridesmaids, and then have an unmarried girl as the maid of honor. Best Man and Ushers the bridegroom always has a best man, his brother if he has one, or his best friend. The number of his ushers is in proportion to the size of the church and the number of guests invited. At a house-wedding, ushers are often merely honorary, and he may have many or none according to the number of his friends. As ushers and bridesmaids are chosen only from close friends of the bride and groom, it is scarcely necessary to suggest how to word the asking. Usually they are told that they are expected to serve at the time the engagement is announced, or at any time as they happen to meet. If school or college friends who live at a distance are among the number, letters are necessary, such as, Mary and I are to be married on the 10th of November, and, of course, you are to be an usher. Usually, he adds, my dinner is on the 7th at 8 o'clock at, naming the club or restaurant. It is unheard of for a man to refuse, unless a bridegroom, for snobbish reasons, asks someone who is not really a friend at all. 
Bride's Usher and Groom's Bridesmaid. A brother of the bride, or if she has no brother, then her favorite cousin, is always asked by the groom to be usher out of compliment to her. The bride returns the compliment by asking the sister of the groom who is nearest her own age to be bridesmaid, or, if he has no sister, she asks a cousin or even occasionally shows her courtesy by asking the groom to name a particular friend of his. The bride, in her asking her, does not say, Will you be one of my bridesmaids because Jim wants me to ask you? If the bridesmaid is not a particular friend of the bride, she knows perfectly that it is on Jim's account that she has been asked. It is the same with the bride's usher. The groom merely asks him as he asks of all of the others. When a foreigner marries an American girl, his own friends being too distant to serve, the ushers are chosen from the friends of the bride. Bridegroom has no trousseau. A whole outfit of new clothes is never considered necessary for a bridegroom, but shabby ones are scarcely appropriate. Whatever his wardrobe may stand in need of should be bought, if possible. He should have, not necessarily new, plenty of good shirts of all kinds, handkerchiefs, underwear, pajamas, socks, ties, gloves, etc., and a certain number of fresh or as good as new suits of clothes. There was a wedding not long ago which caused quite a lot of derisive comment because the groom's mother provided him with a complete and elaborate trousseau from London, enormous trunks full of every sort of raiment imaginable. That part of it all was very nice. Her mistake was inviting a group of friends in to see the finery. The son was so mortified by this publicity that he appeared in the wedding day in clothes conspicuously shabby, in order to counteract the mamma's darling little newlywed effect that the publicity of her generous outlay had produced. It is proper and fitting for a groom to have as many new clothes as he needs, or pleases, or is able to get, but they are never shown to indiscriminate audiences, they are not featured, and he does not go about looking dressed up. THE WEDDING CLOTHES OF THE BRIDEGROOM If he does not already possess a well-fitting morning coat, often called a cutaway, he must order one for his wedding. The frock coat is out of fashion at the moment. He must also have dark-striped gray trousers. At many smart weddings, especially in the spring, a groom, also his best man, wears a white piquet high double-breasted waistcoat because the more white that can be got into an otherwise somber costume, the more wedding-like it looks. Conventionally, he wears a black one to match his coat, like the usher's. The white edge to a black waistcoat is not, at present, very good form. As to his tie, he may choose an ascot of black and white or gray patterned silk, or he may wear a four-in-hand matching those selected for the usher's of black silk with a narrow single or broken white stripe at narrow or wide intervals. At one of the ultra-smart weddings in New York last spring, after the London fashion, the groom and all of the men of the wedding party wore bow-ties of black silk with small white dots. White buckskin gloves are the smartest, but gray suede are the most conventional. White kid is worn only in the evening. It is even becoming the fashion for ushers at small country weddings not to wear gloves at all. 
but at every wedding great or small city or country etiquette demands that the groom best man and ushers all wear high silk hats and that the groom carry a walking stick very particular grooms have the soles of their shoes blacked with waterproof shoe polish so that when they kneel their shoes look dark and neat what the best man wears the best man wears precisely groom wears with only one small exception the groom's boutonniere is slightly different and more elaborate the groom and best man often wear ties that are different from those worn by the ushers and occasionally white waistcoats otherwise the two principal men are dressed like the ushers what the ushers wear it is of greatest importance that in dress each usher be an exact counterpart of his fellows if the picture is to be perfect everyone knows what a ragged edged appearance is produced by a company of recruits whose uniforms are at odd lots an after-effect of army training was evident at one or two smart new york weddings where the grooms were in each case ex-officers and their ushers turned out in military uniformity each of these grooms sent typewritten instructions to his ushers covering every detail of the equipment exacted few people may have reasoned why but scarcely any one failed to notice what smart-looking men all the ushers were it is always just such attention to detail that produces a perfectly finished result the directions sent by one of the grooms was as follows wedding rehearsal on tuesday st bartholomew's at five p m wedding on wednesday at four p m please wear black calfskin low shoes plain black silk socks gray sti striped trousers the darkest you have morning coat and single-breasted black waistcoat white dress shirt see that the cuffs show three orders quarters of an inch below coat sleeves stand-up wing collar tie and gloves are enclosed boutonniere will be at the church be at the church yourself at three o'clock sharp the head usher usually there is no head usher but in certain localities courtesy designates the usher who is selected to take the bride's mother up the aisle as the head or first usher very occasionally too a nervous groom appoints an especially reliable friend head usher so as to be sure that all the details will be carried out including the prompt and proper appearance at the church of the other ushers usually the ushers divide the arrangements among themselves the groom decides who goes on which aisle one of them volunteers or is asked to look out for the bride's coming and to notify the groom another is especially detailed to take the two mothers up the aisle but very often this arrangement is arbitrarily decided by height if one mother is very tall and the other very short they generally go up with different ushers the tallest being chosen for the taller lady and one of medium height for the shorter end of chapter twenty one part two Recording by Marissa Jacobs, Bernard Park, California.